add my welcome to you all. I'm Greg Durenberger, one of the elders here, senior pastor of Emmaus Road Church. And I want to invite you to turn to the first letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. We're going to give our attention this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. There is a phrase that we use when something means enough to us, is valuable enough to us that we're, that we're not willing to lose, we, we're not willing to compromise. We say, well, that's a hill to die on. means uh, if you challenge me, if you take that from me, I'll push back, I'll fight you over it. It's because there are things in life that are worth fighting for. And I believe that's the point that the Apostle Paul is driving home here in his letter to Timothy. There is a proverbial hill, if you will, and this hill is of highest value. And the Fundamental to the Christian life is being fully engaged in the struggle to keep it. It's a hill to die on. So let's give our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 18, 18 through 20. And if you're able, I would want to invite you to stand as an expression of honor and regard for God's holy and authoritative word. Please Follow along. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of God. I invite you to pray with me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Open the eyes of our hearts to behold the King Eternal who is invisible yet immortal yet um, with the eyes of the Spirit we see, know through our ears. And we pray now that um, we might hear you rightly, know you rightly, that we might engage with you rightly, to follow you rightly, so that you would be honored and glorified, Father, through us, among us, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The claim of this text on you and me as followers of Jesus is that we would be mindful every day that there is a war going on and that it is vital to our eternal destiny that we are fully engaged in this war. The main point of these three verses can be summed up in the little phrase Paul uses in verse 18, wage the good warfare. And my purpose in this sermon is twofold. One, I want to show you, unpack for you the nature of that war, what this war is all about, what's at stake, what is this hill that's worth dying on? And secondly, I want to show you how Paul intends for us to go about waging this war. So, so here's the first point again. There is a war. The entire letter of 1 Timothy, reads like a, a transmission to the CIC. I, I was able to get on a nuclear-powered attack submarine one time, and there's the CAC. It's CIC, it's the Combat Information Center. It's where transmissions come in, and it tells you what's going on, and tells you what, the, what you're supposed to do. Chapter 1, verse 3. 
Paul says, as I urged you, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then here in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, wage the good warfare. And this, this word translated charge is, is a military word. It's not like charge. It's, it's like saying, these are your orders, soldier. This whole letter has this terse battlefield tone to it. There's urgency. There's commands everywhere. I urge you. I charge you. I order you. You must command, teach, keep a close watch, persist, fight. And the tone of this letter is informative for us because Timothy is not serving on some literal battlefield. There's no trumpets blaring and no sword slashing or spears or bullets, for that matter, flying. There's no yelling, dying men screaming. Nevertheless, there is a war. And there is much at stake. There, there are actual casualties. There are real names of those who have really fallen. In verses 19 and 20, he says, Some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. You know them. So we have to think clearly about this, right? Carefully about this. Paul is addressing a young elder who has been charged with governing a spiritual household. Timothy is responsible for keeping watch over a specific local church, over the household of God in a specific community, a community named Ephesus. And Paul is framing the work as though his, his young protege was, were personally engaged in a war for the cosmos. We have a book over here on this table that has that in the title. Why is he talking to him that way? Like he's engaged in a war for the cosmos. It's because Timothy, in governing, in guarding, in guiding the household of God, is engaged in a war for the cosmos. Remember? How do people see? How do people in the world see what it looks like when people live God's way? What does it look like? What does the economy of God look like when it's made visible? Through the order, through the rule, of, and the gospel-shaped culture of local churches, where the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed and believed, it produces a distinct culture. There's a vibe that you can actually see and feel. A culture of gratitude. People are thankful. They honor each other. It's a culture of humility. It's a culture characterized by servanthood. It's a culture characterized by Christ-like patience in suffering. It's a culture of generosity and serious joy. Just like that, right? Easy peasy. Just hop on the proverbial cruise ship to Mazatlan and enjoy the ride to paradise. No, loved ones, the, the, the advance of the economy of God is a dangerous journey through enemy territory. It involves sailing through heavy seas and past rocky reefs. And since our natural impulse and our natural perspective framework is not oriented that way, Paul charges, he entrusts Timothy and us with waging the good warfare. Loved ones, there is a war. Now what makes it good? The warfare is good in what sense? Well, 
We could say, first of all, that it's a good warfare in the sense that there's, there, there's none, none of this ambiguity as to whether or not it's just or unjust. There, there's no ambiguity as to whether or not it's right or wrong to engage in it. In the American Civil War, one side believed it was fighting for the freedom of human beings from slavery. But the other side didn't necessarily see it that way. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Gettysburg. It's, uh, it's good. Um, I'd recommend it. But there is a poignant scene when Union soldiers ask their Confederate Army prisoners why they're fighting. <laughs> and the Confederate soldiers, they reply, we're, we're fighting. We're fighting for rats. You're what? Fighting for rats. Rats? Why are you, why are you rats? Yes, sir. Sorry my, for my southern accent here. I don't mean anything disrespectful, but we, we ain't going to let someone take away our rats to live how we see fit. They did not see the war as being over the inhuman institution of slavery, per se. They saw it as a war over the rights of states to preserve their way of life. Their rats was a hill for them to die on. That's the fundamental reason war is typically so controversial and complicated and confusing. The Vietnam War was divisive to our country because no one was ever really quite clear about what made it good. <laughs> In the series entitled Band of Brothers, another you can tell where I spend my time watching entertainment things. Um, the, the American soldiers are advancing through Germany, and they are fatigued from years of fighting. They are weary from all the grief and loss over comrades, and they are cynical because of the waste of it all. And then they come upon a Nazi death camp. And they discover hundreds of emaciated prisoners and thousands of corpses of murdered Jews. And in that moment, the fog of war clears up. And they see that all their sacrifice, all that they have paid in the way of blood and brothers is worth it. The warfare that they have waged is good. What makes the warfare Paul is charging us to wage good? Why are we fighting? What makes the hill worth dying on? What is the hill? <laughs> well, the hill is the glory of God. And the glory of God is being scorned in this world. His infinite worth, His infinite value is being diminished. The honor of His name is being defamed. This is what the scripture refers to as blasphemy. We don't use that word. You know, I, I, I don't ever hear it except when I'm reading the Bible. But it helps me when I think of blasphemy as being the opposite of blessing. To bless is to express approval. When I want your blessing, I want your... I'm, I'm looking for you to be, to be happy with me. <laughs> to be pleased with what I've done or what I've decided. Can I have your blessing? To blaspheme is to express disapproval. To blaspheme is to convey that I am not happy with you or who you are or what you've done. To blaspheme is actually to go even further and to mock or scoff and whatever else that diminishes the worth and the value 
of another. So to blaspheme God is to belittle God's honor. To blaspheme God is to bring Him down to our size. That's why the Pharisees took such passionate offense at Jesus. He makes Himself equal to God. He's bringing God down to His size. And if it was true that Jesus was bringing God down to His size, that would be a hill to die on. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Paul exults in the infinite worth and value of the Lord. He says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And loved ones, that, in a nutshell, is the hill we are defending. That is the hill on which every true disciple of Jesus would die on. And it is the honor and the passionate praise of that name, that name which is above every name, over which we wage the good warfare. So, how do we wage the good warfare? God God has not called us to defend a hill and, and then not supply to us all that we need to, to accomplish that. How is it that God gets glory? More specifically, what is it that we do that, that magnifies God's honor? What is it we do that heightens esteem for His name? that heightens esteem and prizing and treasuring of His fame in all the earth. I'm going to suggest five things, I think. The first is this. We, above all, guard the gospel. We guard the gospel. If the economy of God is worked out in this world through the gospel of God, then gospel doctrine that produces gospel culture, gospel doctrine must be guarded at all costs. Remember chapter 1, verses 3 and 4? Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... I urge you again now, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So Paul had had urged Timothy before. Now Paul's urging him again. Don't you bail out on this, man. The visible display of God's glory is at stake. There are certain individuals who are teaching aberrant doctrine. They've departed from the gospel. And the fruit of their doctrine is not a culture of gratitude and humility and servanthood, and patience, and suffering, and generosity, and great joy. The fruit of their doctrine, well, it's like reading people's commentary on current events on Facebook and social media. Endless nonsense and inflamed polarization. We live in a world that feeds on speculation. But when it comes to sound doctrine, the stakes are infinitely greater infinitely greater than sounding off about something you are absolutely in no position to offer an informed opinion. Our family used to live in Hawaii. My wife is from there. My absolute favorite place was, is Waimea Bay. In the summer... Waimea Bay is as flat as a lake, and uh, it is so crystal clear. I mean, you can see, you can see the bottom of the ocean 
30, 40, 50 feet deep. That same place in the winter is a lot different. Um, the swells from the North Pacific can roll in as high as 30, 40 feet, and guys like me do not go in the water. There is a spot at Waimak Bay called the Boneyard. And the Boneyard is this rocky place where if surfers don't pull out in time, well, that's why it's called the Boneyard. <laughs> um, in, in 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul says with urgency, fight the good fight of the faith. The faith. In verse 20, he says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Why? For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And ended up in the boneyard. Faith, in this particular case, this particular usage, notice the definite article, the. It, it, it's, it's, not, it's not a reference to the spiritual affection of trusting the Lord. It's a reference to sound gospel doctrine. It is the faith. It is for the sake of the faith that we wage the good fight. And the way we wage this good fight is by guarding the faith. And if we fail to earnestly and attentively do our part in discerningly guarding sound gospel doctrine, people, actual people that we know might end up on the boneyard. Second, we wage the good warfare by trusting all that God has promised to be for us in Christ Jesus. So on the one hand, we fight for the honor and praise of God's name and his reputation by guarding the gospel of the faith. In another sense, we magnify God by entrusting ourselves in faith to all that God has promised to be for us. Verse 18. Wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. Here it's different. There's no definite article, so it's not holding the faith. It's holding faith. It's holding confidence. It's holding this the spiritual affection. He's referring to the spiritual affection of trust. Faith means trusting. Faith means relying on. Faith means depending on. Can I trust you? Can I rely upon you? Can I really know that you're not going to let me down? Faith means finding satisfaction in. And God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in all that he has promised to be for us in Christ Jesus. And perhaps the clearest definition of faith in the entire New Testament is Paul's comments about Abraham in Romans chapter 4 verse 20. He says of Abraham, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he, and this is Abraham, he grew strong in his faith, not the faith, but his faith, as he gave glory to God, and here it is, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So you see, faith is, faith is nothing in and of itself. It's just, you know, just have a little faith. That, that, that's, that's not what magnifies God's wisdom or power or care. Entrusting ourselves to all that God has promised to be for us is what honors Him. So, so let's... Psalm 34.10 was on my mind. 
on Friday because this, this, this whole thing just wasn't coming together. And on Friday, when it's not coming together, you <laughs> anxiety begins to rise a little bit. And you, know, you start thinking, oh, man, it's never going to come together. It's going to be like the worst thing ever. And, and, um, and uh, so I, I prayed Psalm 3410, which says, it's a promise that God will withhold no good thing from those who seek him. I go to that one a lot. And my anxiety about this moment, that moment, diminishes. Because if God promises to withhold no good thing, everything that I need to do what he's called me to do, as I seek him, I seek him. I pray. I call out to him. Lord, help me. And he withholds no good thing. I hope. We'll see. Again. Or so let's say you're angry. The, the, according to the Bible, anger rises when something is taken from us that we are seeking for our joy and satisfaction more than we are seeking joy and satisfaction in Christ. So, so a great promise is Psalm 1611, as an example. The promise of God is that in Him and in His presence there is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. If we entrust ourselves to a promise like that, we begin to see and feel that, there, that, that the pleasure there in God's presence, in his person, in the person and presence of Jesus is infinitely better than whatever was taken from me or withheld from me. And that God is loving and he's in control. What happens? My anger diminishes. And who gets the honor and the glory? The one who, in whom is our joy. Or let's say you're disappointed with something that has happened. Disappointment shows that we're trusting something else more than Jesus to satisfy us. Something which has now failed us. So, <sighs> disappointed. But when you entrust yourself to God's promise, for instance, in Psalm 73, 25-26, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire more than you. My flesh and my heart may fail, may, it might, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So when we, when we set our hearts back on Jesus until we are, we're so satisfied in Him that we desire nothing else but Him, then disappointment diminishes. And who gets the honor and the glory? The one in whom our hearts find satisfaction. Loved ones, Entrusting ourselves to all that God has promised to be for us in Christ Jesus is a fight. <laughs> it's a fight. It is an all-out battle at times to trust that the Lord will actually keep His promise to fill us with more joy than the joy someone or something or some loss took away from us. It's an all-out battle to trust that the Lord will actually keep His promise to fill us with satisfaction, deeper satisfaction than the satisfaction we lost in losing something or someone else. It is an all-out battle to believe that God is for us when we don't receive exactly what we want, when we want it. But it is a good warfare. It's about entrusting ourselves to what is most right. It's about entrusting ourselves to all that God has promised to be for us in Christ. That is, in Christ in the sense that Jesus died so that each and every promise God has made to His children is an absolute and emphatic yes and amen. And this good warfare is a fight that we will wage in which, in which we must engage to the very end of our lives. It doesn't ever get easier. I anticipate that the battle to trust God will be hardest at the end. Third, we wage the good warfare as... We, we love one another earnestly from the heart. And this is because loving 
others earnestly from heart, can, <laughs> it can be a real battle. It, it, it is. There, there are some people and some moments are, are more challenging than others. Some days we seem to have more capacity for loving than others. So where does our capacity to love earnestly from the heart come from? Look at 1 Timothy 1.5. The aim of our charge is love that, here's where it comes from, issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Earnest, heartfelt, practical love for others. Issues from a sincere faith. Namely, trusting all that God promises to be for us in Christ Jesus. How so? Well, imagine that somebody from your missional community texts you and says, Hey, could we get together for coffee this Saturday morning? love to catch up with you, tell you about what's going on in my life. Now, if, if this person texting you is someone that you find uh, really energizing to be around, someone that's so easy to talk with, um, someone, uh, you know, whose company you enjoy, you just quickly text right back, sure, love to, when, where? But, let's just say that the person texting you requires extra energy, extra patience, extra grace in various ways. You will find it at least a minor battle to respond affirmatively. But isn't the real battle a fight for faith? Isn't it a fight to believe and to trust that God will supply the extra energy, the extra patience, the extra grace that you need to love this person earnestly from the heart? And, and, and now, what if you knew that... Um, Perhaps this was more than just a recreational coffee time. What if this person was, in fact, in a real crisis and really needed to talk, really needed wisdom, really needed someone to come alongside? And what if your reticence was based on your own valid, legitimate need to just have some personal time to yourself? I just need some time to to recharge. It's a fight, is it not? To trust that God would not only supply the energy and wisdom in order for you to care appropriately and lovingly for that person, but it's also a fight to believe that God would actually supply you with all that you need at that time for your own personal refreshment. The capacity to love rightly, appropriately, at the right time. It issues from a sincere faith. So the question is always, in what am I trusting? Do you believe that God will keep every promise that he has made to you in Christ at the price of Jesus' death so that you might be free And have all that you need to love someone generously, earnestly, from the heart. We wage the good warfare by loving others earnestly according to the faith that God has. According to the faith that God will in fact be for us all that we need in union with Christ Jesus. Here's a fourth way that we wage the good warfare. And it is by the Word and the Spirit. 
all caps in the word and. The word and spirit. There, there are people from our background, when I say our background, I, I mean people like me who have very high esteem for the sufficiency of Scripture. We're people of the book. And we can very easily undervalue the powerful faith-building effect of spiritual gifts, particularly gifts like prophecy. People from a background where there is high esteem and comfort with the impact of spiritual gifts, such as prophecy, can easily undervalue the sufficiency of Scripture. But what God has joined together, let not, well at least let not Emmaus Road, Separate. So with that in mind, listen again to 1 Timothy 1.18. This charge I entrust to you. So, so right there, this, this charge, this is an apostolic command from Paul. This is God's word to all people at all times. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. That would be the other kind, where there is this subjective, non-authoritative for all people at all times, but a revelation from God for a particular person at a particular time. Read it again. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Do you see the convergence of the Word and the Spirit? This charge I entrust to you, authoritative, objective, apostolic revelation from God for all people at all times. But the prophecies previously made about you, that would be an example of subjective, non-authoritative revelation from God for a particular person in a particular situation at a particular time. And that's what we understand as the New Testament gift of prophecy. And what is remarkable here is that (laughs) Paul doesn't set them authoritative apostolic revelation from God over here and non-authoritative situational revelation from God over here in opposition to one another. Rather, Paul demonstrates this, he, he, he proves the extraordinary power and effect of this marriage between word and spirit by them. By them you may wage the good warfare. Now, commentators differ because grammatically it's it's a little, it's just not absolutely certain if them only refers to the prophecies previously made to Timothy or if by them he's referring to the prophecies and the Apostolic charge. Either way, <laughs> it's amazing, especially for people like us. I mean, if it's if them is the prophecies, then then we have a long ways to go. We are just babies when it comes to applying this the power of this text to our lives. There, there is there is extraordinary. Warfare-making power in the New Testament gift of prophecy. But if, and I think this is right, if he's referring to, if them is referring to both, then it's the Word and the Spirit together that we will find power and courage and boldness to engage in things that in our flesh alone 
are really hard to do. So, so here's a situation that I can imagine, and it's, it's kind of like, I think, Timothy's situation. So as a pastor, I, I can see myself in this situation where I've got a couple of dudes in my church, this church. And, you know, let's just, for the sake of things, rather than Hymenaeus and Alexander, because we've got an Alexander around here someplace, we'll say one guy's name is Ford and the other guy's name is Ferrari. And, and, and these guys are really nice dudes. You know, they're great guys. People like them. They've been around the church for a while. They, um, they're winsome. They're sharp. They're smart. And they have joined Emmaus Road Church as members. And after a while, I learn that Ford and Ferrari are bringing up stuff in their missional community and their discipleship huddle. That things that are just, they're clearly not consistent with um, our doctrinal convictions. Um, in fact, these guys are promoting things that we would consider heterodoxy. It's, it's just flat out toxic teaching that people who may not be quite so discerning could find interesting and intriguing and undermining to their confidence in God. And um, <laughs> this is a particular pain to me because I like, the, I like Ford and Ferrari. Uh, they're fast, you know. Um, they're sporty. Um, they're sharp and persuasive. Now they've got a following. And um, I got this potentially painful situation on my hands. It's just got disruption and division and dangers written all over it. And rather, and honestly, you know, I just, these are not the kind of things, you, you, you know, you think, man, that's why they pay you the big bucks. You just lean into that stuff, easy, get after it. No, no, no. We don't like dealing with situations like this. And, um, but here's the deal. God's word says, authoritatively, objectively, for all people at all times, you charge them not to do that. It's a serious issue. They could end up in the boneyard. And worse, they could kill your church. Deal with it. That's what this book says. I know what this book says. Oh, it's hard. I don't want to have to do this. And I'm just, oh, you know, there's all kinds of things, right? That this book says that are hard to do sometimes. Don't want to. Don't feel like it, even though it's clear. Even though it's authoritative. But here's the situation. Not only has God's word spoken to this, but, you know, like about six months before these guys showed up at a fanning the flame gathering, for instance, somebody in that, that time that we had where we, in, you know, we're trying to stir up spiritual gifts, especially prophecy, somebody says to me, they're praying for me, and they say, you know, I, I had this impression recently that, you know, as I was praying for you, and, and I saw this fire. <laughs> There's this fire burning, and, and, and uh, th th there was danger that this fire could spread, consume things. I, I saw you in front of that fire, and, and I could sense that you were fearful about, about getting burned and this fire just, you know, burning everything up. Um, and um, I just had this impression that the Lord, I don't even know what this is all about. I don't know what it is. But, but, but the Lord um, is saying to you, you need to be courageous. And you need to take the hose. And you need to put that fire out. Got that filed back here someplace. And, uh, you know, probably a few weeks after that, I'm at a regional assembly of elders gathering. And we're praying for each other and we're worshiping. And one of the other pastors in our region comes up and says something. Yeah, I, I don't know if this is relevant to you. I don't know if it means anything to you. But I just have the sense that, you know, there's, there's something that you know is the right thing to do. And, uh, but you, you know, you, you, there's a lot of fear about it. And you've been resistant about taking action. And God just wants you to know, trust his word. Trust him. He's in this. He's going to help you to just do the right thing. So I got God's word over here functioning objectively and powerfully. But over here, I've got a couple of, <laughs> a couple of subjective things that, 
these people didn't know. They didn't know what they related to. They didn't, they, there was nothing specific about it. But they felt compelled to tell me. I think that this word is sufficient to trust and obey all by itself. But I'll tell you, it's a powerful thing if you've ever experienced it when somebody comes up to you, does not know about your situation, and in effect reads your mail and says, you know, here's what I think God's telling you to do. And you go, now I'm ready to wage a warfare in a way that I was not ready before. We believe in the practical and earnest pursuit of the gift of prophecy. And we believe wholeheartedly in the sufficiency of God's word. And we are babes when it comes to the practice of prophecy. I mean, we're just tripping over each other all the time, trying to figure out how to make it happen. And, you know, is this right? Is this the Lord? Is this not? If the honor and the praise and the esteem of God is the hill of hills to die on, then the spiritual gift of prophecy, in accordance with God's authoritative word, loved ones, this is one of the most essential implements of waging the good warfare. By them, you wage the good warfare. Here's the last one. And it's a charge, really. To join, it doesn't have to be this one, but if you are not a covenant-keeping member of a local church, then join a local church as a covenant-keeping member. When, when our faith in the, God, uh, in the good of all that God has promised to be for us is under assault, when situations rise that stir up hard thoughts about God, I can safely say from my own experience that the foremost temptation that you will face is to withdraw from the covenant community of the local church. It's the way it always goes. In 35 and a half years, I've seen it hundreds of times. And, and like I say, I've felt the temptation myself. But the local church is God's primary means of asserting the governance and preservation of his economy in the world. So with that in mind, listen to verse 20 again. It's not Ford and Ferrari. It is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom... I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What is that? What is this handing over to Satan? I mean, it's, it sounds like you're shoving somebody out the door into the hands of the demagogue, demagorgon, whatever it is. <laughs> sounds that way, at least, kind of. But that's not what it is. That's not what it is. It's not some blind, cruel punishment, abandonment. Vengeance, the aim is learning, that they may learn. The goal is restorative instruction. And the handing over Satan refers to this removing, removing the protective nurture and care of the covenant community of the membership of a local church. It's a reference to the final steps of church discipline outlined by Jesus in Matthew 18, 17. If he or they or whatever refuses to listen to even the church, then let him, them, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In God's economy, it's, it's in becoming members of one another where we keep the household rules and that we experience the very practical, preserving, faith-strengthening God-honoring sweetness of spiritual protection. Isn't it clear then as to why it's so dangerous when false doctrine is introduced into a local expression of God's household? Is it not clear, crystal clear as to why how becoming a covenant-keeping member of a local church is utterly essential in waging the good warfare? It's, it's here where we guard the gospel. Together, it's here where we stand side by side in the battle to trust all that God has promised to be for us in Christ Jesus. It's here where we learn to love by faith. It's here where we practice the power of the Word and Spirit. It's here where together, as a community, 
Just like a physical body, we make visible the economy of God. These are the weapons of our warfare. This is the hill to die on. To God be the glory. Here's the one other thing I want to point you to in this text. <laughs> I think we could hear this battle cry and uh, feel like the Lord's standing over us like some sergeant major, tough and cussing all the time and hard on us and so forth. Twice in this letter, Paul refers to Timothy. You don't see it in the English, but he uses a little different form. But in this text, he calls him Timothy, my child. The, the form of, of the name, it, it would be like, don't anybody do this, but it would be like somebody calling me Greggy. My mom and dad called me Greggy. Somebody else called me Greggy once. <laughs> um, but that's what it's like saying, Timmy, this charge I entrust to you, Timmy, and all of you, my children, God speaking to you with tenderness, affection, not going to leave you not going to abandon you. He's with you. Lord, I pray that with affectionate ways and affectionate names, by your Spirit, you would communicate your care and sustenance to every believer, every follower, every disciple of you in this room. Sustain us in this warfare, this good warfare. Fill us, empower us, and walk with us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.